Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. 1.18 million people watched us in the last seven days. Just get that number running round in your head. If you were one of those, I thank you. And if you are one of those, please bring another viewer. Because now that we are regularly either just below or just over the 1 million mark, my target has moved on to 1.5 million per week. Help me get there. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm just a hair's breadth away from a quarter of a million subscribers on that channel. I hope to leave the show tonight with that quarter of a million figure achieved. The Clinton aide that tied himself to a tree tied an electric cord around his neck and then shot himself, was described by the police on the scene as the worst case of suicide they had ever seen. I'm making that last bit up, but not the first bit. The decision to brand the killing of this man as suicide, just like Jeffrey Epstein's, to whom the man was linked, is a truly terrifying spiral downwards in the Clinton crime family's annals. And the United States is now ruled by crime families. Nobody really believes that Joe Biden is running the White House. Anyone who saw him on the red carpet in Kiev knows that he cannot safely be trusted not to walk right off the end of the red carpet and into the sea. Everybody who's watched the sniffing videos of Joe Biden, the stuttering, stammering, staggering Joe Biden, knows that he's not really running the country. Who is really running the country is a moot point. Some say it's the Obamas. Some say it still is the Clintons. My money is on the latter, and therefore unlucky is he who ever made friendship or took a job with that Clinton family, for, as I said, 56 of them have now committed suicide. I'm going to hazard a guess that there is no other person in the whole world who has lost 56 people close to her from suicide other than Hillary Clinton. If you can contradict me, I hope that you will in the course of the show. It's been an amazing week on the war front. In the last two hours, the Russian armed forces have begun a general advance. They have advanced up to four kilometers across virtually the entire length of the line from north to south. Bakhmut is now 
partially overrun and will either have to be evacuated in the next hours or thousands more will join the thousands who have already perished to defend a place that Zelensky is now describing as strategically unimportant. That's a whopping lie, of course, for if it were true, thousands of young men dead now would still be alive, for they would never have been ordered to remain in place and face this onslaught. It's because it is strategically extremely important that the defense for Bakhmut was mounted, but it has been in vain. Before Sunday's show, it seems obvious that Bakhmut, like Solidar before it, will have been overrun by the newly strengthened and reinforced Russian armed forces. The fact that long-range weapons are now beginning to appear on the battlefield and hit the lights of Donetsk city center, killing old ladies and old men, school children and school teachers, of course means that the Russian advance will have to go farther maybe than it was intended that it would go. And as Putin said this week in his important address to the nation, the longer range the weapons, the farther the Russian advance will have to go to push them back out of range of Russian citizens, not to mention the Russian heartland itself across the previous border between eastern Ukraine and the Russian Federation. The speech by Vladimir Putin and the speech by Joe Biden deserve to be placed alongside each other and studied in parallel. Let's start with Putin. His speech was measured, entirely lacking in bravado or braggadocio. It was delivered more in sorrow than in anger. He said twice that they were not fighting the Ukrainian people, but the Kiev regime that had taken them hostage. That aforementioned regime itself being a hostage of the uh, geriatric, gerontocratic, semi-imbecile currently occupying the White House. I almost mispronounced the White House because I'm told that Joe had another papal toilet accident whilst walking with Zelensky on a red carpet too and that that accounted for the oddness of his gait. But the White House is titularly still run by the man who went to Poland to issue a series of blood-curdling threats and utterly empty bellicose promises to retake all of the Ukraine and Crimea and return them to the purview of the regime in Kiev. Not a word of it was true, of course. Not a word of it could possibly be true because, as Medvedev put it, more powerfully than Putin put it, Russia cannot lose a war in Ukraine because if NATO enters the war any more seriously than they currently are, then Russia will use all of the weapons at its disposal, 
in order to prevail. And you don't need to be Einstein to work out what Medvedev meant. So Joe Biden's bellicose promises were entirely empty, which begs the question, to whom, for whom, were they being made? It cannot be the case that the citizens of Kiev, let alone the denizens of the bunker of President Zelensky, believe that they can turn back the tide of the Russian advance. It cannot possibly be that they imagine that one day their flag will fly in Crimea or in Donetsk, in Lugansk, in Mariupol. They cannot conceivably believe that, for if they do, then it's a ward, a mental ward that they should be in. But I'm not in any doubt that they don't believe it at all. So what is the end game that they have in mind? It's very difficult to know. Our guests tonight will try to help us to come to a conclusion. But there are some pointers. There are Ukrainian military maneuvers this evening on the border with Transnistria, a breakaway republic of Russian-speaking people from the breakaway republic of Moldova. The Moldovans want Transnistria back. The Russian-speaking people there will not tolerate that and want to link up with the Novorus republics recently liberated in the course of the last year by the Russian army. The Ukrainians clearly intend to invade, at the very least, to sack the place of armaments, of ammunition, which, by all accounts, they are in desperate need of. If they do, there will be a new war. War not just in Ukraine, but war in Transnistria and presumably in Moldova also. This will be an incendiary escalation of the gravest possible kind. The Russian government has just withdrawn from start the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty though they have promised that they will not add quantitatively to the numbers of their nuclear warheads, which number some 3,500 to 4,000 nuclear warheads, each of them 1,000 times more powerful than the bombs which fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We won't know, however, if they do add to them quantitatively because they have declared that no American inspection teams will be allowed access to Russia's strategic weaponry. So Russia may or may not be going to build more nuclear weapons, may or may not be going to improve the quality of the nuclear weapons it already has. But every way you slice it or dice it, it means that we are edging ever closer to a nuclear confrontation between East and West. And if you didn't think that, if you thought I might be exaggerating, you did not see the statement from the Pentagon in the last couple of hours. I'll paraphrase, but only very marginally, only because I don't have it in front of me. 
the Pentagon issued the following statement, that China will face consequences in the event of it deepening its ties with Russia. Just ponder that statement for a moment. Ponder first the exceptionalism of one nuclear superpower ordering another nuclear superpower with whom it may deepen relations. Ponder its effect on the Chinese people, 1.6 billion of them, who thought that their country was long past listening to orders from foreigners about who or whom they can be friendly with or what they can or cannot do. Ponder its impact on the Chinese leadership about to announce this weekend peace proposals to try and bring about a negotiated end to the Ukraine-Russia conflict before it escalates into World War III. Imagine the reckless, feckless, fearsomely stupid official in the Pentagon who chose this moment to warn, threaten China that it will face consequences. Now, what consequences do the Pentagon have in mind? The Pentagon being the Department of Defense. One presumes the Pentagon only speaks on military matters. In other words, they were not threatening, I don't know, sanctions on TikTok. They were not threatening new restrictions on Huawei. The Department of Defense threatening China with consequences is a military threat. How will it be answered by China? I'm not a China expert, though I'm going there next month seeking to become rather more expert. But my guess is this, that this Pentagon warning took us another step closer to World War III. It cemented the close strategic partnership between Russia and China even more concretely. And when you imagine that for decades it was official United States policy to keep China and Russia as far apart from each other as possible, and if possible, to have them at each other's throats as a piece of statecraft. The Pentagon, Pelosi, the provocations over Taiwan over and over and over again has achieved the precise opposite of that which Kissinger and Nixon and Brzezinski and Carter and all presidents since have sought to employ. So we'll talk about the war, not just in Europe, but the war in Syria, against Syria, as it still shivers and shudders under the impact of not one but two earthquakes in the last seven days, Israel began its relentless bombardment 
of downtown Damascus again. Israel moved its armed forces into a city of some importance to me. Forty years ago, I twinned my own hometown of Dundee with the Palestinian town, now city, of Nablus. There was a massacre in Nablus today. A hundred people were shot. Ten were killed, including a man the same age as myself. Twenty-five are critically wounded. And of course, Iran has not answered yet for the Israeli attacks upon her. Can war really be boiling up in the Middle East while it rages in Eastern Europe? I'm afraid to tell you it can and it is. And it may not be the only war. North Korea launched several ballistic missiles capable of landing in San Francisco, down the California coast, anytime it likes. There were no nuclear warheads on board. But next time, who knows? There might be. Fasten your seatbelts. This is an important discussion tonight as we approach the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in answer to the eight-year NATO war of attrition against the Russian-speaking people of the eastern part of the country. This is the mother of all talk shows. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now we've got a poll running. Is the West to blame for the Ukraine war? A, yes, B, no. You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube, on my Telegram, t.me forward slash George Galloway, or on the YouTube community poll. A staggering 12,533 people have already voted, and the show has only been running for 22 minutes. And it's not going well for the West. So 12,533 people have voted. On Twitter, it's yes, 76%. On YouTube, it's yes, 
97%. On Telegram, always the most perspicacious of our pollsters. It's yes, 98%. And YouTube community poll, yes, 96%. Even the fools of the NATO lobby can't alter the result of that poll, can they? You've got the best part of two hours still to cast your vote. If you want to comment on what I've said or didn't say, if you're in the UK or Ireland, it's 0808196552. If you're in the US or Canada, it's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. And if you're in the rest of the world, it's plus four four two zero three nine six six two six two five. Now, Professor Syed Mohammed Marandi is not just one of the most popular all-time guests on the mother of all talk shows. I wish there were 10 of them because nobody explains the Middle East better. Nobody explains Iran better than Professor Marandi. And we're lucky that the chair of American Studies at the University of Tehran is able to join us again this evening. Professor, uh, welcome. Let's talk, uh, if we may, first about what's happening in occupied Palestine. Uh, there seems to be a deliberate decision made by the new administration. Well, how can I put it? To kill large numbers of Palestinian civilians whether they're sitting on roofs, whether they're leaning on a walking stick, whether they're boys or girls, men or women, fighters or not fighters. The number of people killed since January the 1st is shaping up to be a record outside of actual open wartime. What's going on there, do you think? Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. It's uh, always a pleasure engaging with your audience as well. Uh, it is quite extraordinary, not just the fact that the new uh, regime in Tel Aviv is killing increasingly large numbers of Palestinians, but uh, it's amazing that Western media, legacy media, media, the mainstream media, uh, they are even more quiet now than they were 15, 20 years ago. Uh, it's almost complete indifference. Or it's justification if you look at the BBC website. They not only distort the numbers of people who were uh, murdered this year, but they distort they try to represent or present or produce a narrative of what happened today that makes the Israelis look uh, innocent or at least less guilty. And Western human rights organizations more indifferent than before. It's, it's quite amazing. But I think it's probably reflective of the fact that the new regime in Israel is more right-wing than before. 
uh, it's always been an extremist racist regime, but now it is more crude and open in its racism. Netanyahu is, in my opinion, uh, a Trump-like figure, someone who has no ideology or belief, but will latch himself on to any movement that serves his purpose. And Netanyahu wants to stay out of jail. So the best thing for him to do is to join forces with the most extreme racists of the racist establishment in, uh, in, in occupied Palestine. And I'd like to point out that, as you know, these demonstrators who are protesting against Netanyahu, it's not as if they are uh, people who support uh, Palestinian rights. They're, for the most part, themselves racist, who, but they are not as extreme as the right wing and they're concerned about their own rights. And that's why they're on the streets. Of course, there are a, uh, a there is a segment of uh, the Jewish society in Palestine that is completely opposed to apartheid and they do some very good work. Some do very excellent work, but they are unfortunately a small minority in this broader framework. Well, let's analyze uh, some of those points that you made, Professor. First of all, uh, we're told the annexation of Crimea, even though the people voted for uh, union with Russia overwhelmingly uh, back in 2014, the annexation of territory cannot be allowed to stand. But the annexation of East Jerusalem uh, has been recognized by virtually all of the NATO governments. And many have moved their embassies to illegally annexed territory that was acquired by force. Ditto the annexation of the Golan Heights, which of course legally belongs to Syria, but which uh, American presidents have gone and stood on and declared their uh, acceptance of that illegal annexation. So some annexations are good and some annexations are bad. Ditto the unacceptability of acquiring other people's territory by force. We're told that that cannot stand. But my twin city of Nablus, where a massacre took place today, is indisputably territory that was acquired by force. It is indisputably illegally, militarily occupied land. And yet, as you say, not a leader, not one leader has condemned what happened in Nablus today. Yes, I... I agree completely. And it's not just governments, it's MPs. European parliamentarians have nothing to say. Maybe a handful of parliamentarians or two to be more precise may speak out, but everyone else is silent. No one is going to say anything about it. And there's also another difference or an important difference between what goes on in Palestine and what goes on in uh, the Crimea or in uh, the Donbass. And that is that 
the Russians, whether you agree with it or not, they are taking over, they've taken over territory that is Russian. The population in these areas in Eastern and Southern Ukraine are sympathetic to Russia. They want to be a part of Russia. Now, whether anyone accepts this or not, that's that's another issue altogether. But in the case of the Golan, in the case of the West Bank, in the case of East Jerusalem, the population is Palestinian. And European settlers are coming in to displace this, the Palestinians. And the Europeans and the Americans have no problem with that. Of course, for most of us, or at least for people like myself and most of my friends, the whole of Palestine is an illegitimate apartheid regime. And Palestinians who've been displaced have the right of return, and they should be allowed to leave, leave, live equally across Palestine. But in, even if we were to accept the uh, European, uh, the official European position about the two-state solution, and they know that there is no such thing, they know it is dead, they know it never existed, but even if they were in order to uh, kick the can down the road, we were to accept the European model, what is happening in these areas, as you point out, is much worse than what the Russians, by European standards, are doing in Ukraine. Because they are liberating their own people in their own eyes, but in Palestine, they are displacing the native population, and they're replacing them with, um, with immigrants from Europe. Now, I mentioned earlier, Professor, the earthquakes which struck Syria, the sanctions which have bedeviled efforts to bring relief uh, from the suffering there. But it didn't stop Israel beginning its bombardment of the Syrian capital again. What's that all about? We have to remember when these air attacks began, and, and there were also artillery strikes in the past. During the dirty war in Syria, when NATO countries and their regional allies funded Al-Qaeda and their affiliates, and we have to keep in mind that ISIS was Al-Qaeda, it was Al-Qaeda, and they split. Jolani, the head of Al-Qaeda in Syria, was there on behalf of Abu Bakr Baghdadi. Then they split. ISIS was on one side, and they, they created ISIS, and then there was Al-Qaeda. So Al-Qaeda, when they were fighting in Syria and affiliates, whenever they would start losing ground, the Israelis would bomb Syrian Arab army positions. And the same is true with ISIS. Alongside the Golan, which is occupied Syrian territory, but in any case, the Israelis assisted both ISIS and Al-Qaeda. It's extraordinary. They were they they held the land between uh, Israeli positions and Syrian army positions. Whenever the Syrian army tried to take back territory from ISIS or Al-Qaeda in that area, the Israelis would bomb the Syrians because they wanted to strengthen ISIS. They wanted to strengthen Al-Qaeda. And this is something that many Israeli 
regime officials and former officials and military officials admitted. They said openly that we prefer ISIS to Assad. So these air attacks began back then. Later on, in order to justify their airstrikes, they would say we're striking Iranian positions to sort of legitimize it, even though it doesn't create any legitimacy because any Iranian forces in Syria are there at the behest of the Syrian government. So they're legitimate. If there are American forces in Germany and the German government allows it, then if you if a third party strikes those American bases, it's against the will of the German government. So, but in any case, they weren't really attacking and they have not really been attacking Iranian soldiers. If an Iranian soldier was to be murdered by Israelis, it would be all over social media within a couple of hours. But over the past couple of years, we haven't had any such uh, case where the Israelis intentionally hit an Iranian. What they do is they strike Syrian army positions and then try to claim that they were striking Iranians, as I said, to create this legitimacy, a, a, a sort of legitimacy in the eyes of their Western allies. But in this case, it is extraordinary that the country which is which is reeling from an earthquake and at the same time it's suffering from sanctions and cannot bring in relief because of the sanctions, at that time, the Israeli regime chooses to bomb the people of Syria in the middle of the night. It is outrageous. And we've seen pictures of the of the victims, like the young woman who was murdered. None of these people are Iranian. All of these people are middle-class, educated uh, people in Syria. No one in the West is going to condemn Israel. So if the Israeli regime kills people, murders, massacres people in Nablus, it's fine. If they massacre people in Syria, it's fine. The Israeli regime can do whatever it wants and it can get away with it, the Western media will say nothing, Western government officials will say nothing, Western elites will say nothing, Western political parties will say nothing. It's just total silence. Yet somehow, this is the free world, somehow, this is the civilized world, it's the garden, and the rest of us are supposed, supposedly the barbarians. Finally, Professor, uh... It's quite widely known, though not entirely acknowledged in Tehran, uh, that Israel struck Iran and Iranian targets in Iraq. Um, and the Iranian government promised that they would answer it, but they haven't answered it. Why is that? There are two strikes. One was a convoy of goods that were going from Iraq to Syria. Those weren't owned, they, they, they didn't belong to Iran. They were Iraqi. Three of the trucks that were full, full of food and goods for ordinary Syrians, they were aid for Syrians because of the sanctions, three of those trucks were destroyed. So the Israelis were, were impeding aid and assistance from getting to the Syrian people. In the case of Iran, we had three drones that attacked, that were used to attack a military facility in Esfahan. 
that attack failed. One of the drones was downed. The other two, two got tangled in a net of electronic warfare, and the, the attack com failed completely. Now, he, this is my personal interpretation. So this is, uh, I'm just speaking on my own behalf. A week ago, we, know, we now know, a drone struck a, an Israeli tanker, uh, causing little damage. I would imagine that this could be possibly retaliation for Esfahan. Since the attack in Esfahan failed, whoever attacked the Israelis, they did not carry out much damage. They didn't inflict much damage because they, want, they just wanted to show the Israelis how vulnerable they are. And this is an important point. Because of the sanctions, very few Iranian ships sail through the Mediterranean. So therefore, the Israeli regime doesn't have all that many targets to strike. But because most of Israeli trade either goes through the into the Persian Gulf or near the Persian Gulf, or it goes past towards India, China, it goes past, past these, this area, a, a lot of Israeli trade is vulnerable to drones and missiles. So Iran is not very vulnerable. The Israelis are very vulnerable. And I think the, those, the, the people who hit the Israeli ship were sending a message to the Israelis that we can hurt you a lot more than you can hurt us. So back off. Professor Marandi, as always, a pleasure talking to you and hearing your wisdom. Professor Syed Mohammed Marandi of the University of Tehran. Now, the poll has not changed in its balance, only in its quantum. I'll give you the number by the end of the show, but we might be looking at the biggest ever poll on the mother of all talk shows. Hats off to those watching us on Rumble. Let me confess, I had never in my life ever looked at Rumble. I had no idea what it was until last Sunday, our audience there reached 130,000 people were watching the mother of all talk shows on Rumble. That was twice as many, more than, nearly three times as many at that stage as were watching on YouTube. So we've made a breakthrough on Rumble. I'd like to thank them and thank all of you who are watching the show on Rumble. I must check it out and watch it there myself. Now, if you're watching on uh, YouTube, you must know about the Super Chat mechanism. You can make a donation to the show, to the launch of the two shows that are in the pipeline, Moats America and Moats Berlin. You can help us get those off the ground by donating through Super Chat. Let's take the first call. It's from Florida, from Simon. Simon in Florida, most welcome. What would you like to say? Good afternoon, or good evening, Mr. Galloway there. Um, unexpected surprise. I actually called in to give your staff a couple of um, very hot tips, and they decided that it was important enough that I should be put on with you sooner than Sunday coming. 
so the information that I had. I'm all ears. I'm all ears. To, yeah. Was to alert you to a UNESCO conference in Paris that is currently underway. It started today, continues tomorrow, and it's called Internet for Trust. And they're discussing um, a final version. Well, th this is to amend a draft document, and then a final version will be published and will be available for public comment until March the 8th. But the purpose of it is to discuss a set of global guidelines for regulating digital platforms to improve the reliability of information. And the head of UNESCO expanded upon that by saying, and this is available for people to verify and watch for themselves on YouTube, she actually said that conspiracy theories need regulation by disinformation experts. And then she went further and said, there are 90 elections from now to 2024, and we cannot allow democratic processes to be swayed by peddlers of disinformation. Now, they're casting the definition of disinformation and also misinformation very, very widely indeed. So I would like to alert you and your colleagues in the alternative media that the hammer is going to fall very soon. And your listeners may well wish to take the opportunity to impart their comments on this open public comment period until March the 8th in order that we have the benefit of receiving your alternative views on things before we're very much being regulated by a very heavy hand. Well, uh, that's chilling indeed. I didn't know any of that. Once upon a time, UNESCO was a kind of cuddly, nice organization. Now, it would appear, it is being fashioned into a hammer. Uh, nobody, apart from Twitter, actually, uh, nobody has uh, seriously censored me so far. Perhaps it's the size of the audience. It would make a lot of people very angry if they hammered uh, the mother of all talk shows. Uh, it may be my nearly 30 years in the British Parliament, may be the fact I'm the leader of a registered British political party, the Workers' Party of Britain. That might be seen as uh, interference in the British political process. I don't know. Uh, it may be that I'm not one for uh, fanning the flames of mindless conspiracy theories, but quite a few of the things that were called conspiracy theories, including by me over these last years, have turned out to be true. And the conspirators turned out to be those who called them conspiracy theories. So who will guard the guards is the eternal uh, question. Uh, who will decide what is a conspiracy theory or a working hypothesis? Who will decide what is misinformation, what is disinformation, and what is merely inconvenient information and argumentation? But supposing you're right, and in the worst possible case, well, I've already said many times that it's becoming very difficult indeed uh, for me to work and operate politically here in London. There are other places I can live and work and speak freely. 
Um, and if the worst comes to the worst, that's exactly what I will do. The question will be how you can uh, hear me. It's very important that you follow my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway. Not that Telegram is somehow impregnable as a fortress, but it would be the last ditch to fall. And of course, there's my website, which we are bringing back to life and which we are intending should be its own server and should be uh, able to host from wherever uh, we are in the world uh, the mother of all talk shows and other parts of my output. Uh, just never believe you hear a story that I tied myself to a tree, tied an electric cord around my neck, and shot myself in a wood. I never, ever go into woods. Thanks, Simon. Eric is in London. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Eric. Thank you. Yes. Um, no, I wanted to ask you uh, just two questions, but they're both relating to Russia. Um, my first one is about uh, the Western hypocrisy on democracy, because I'm sure you're aware um, the lead singer of um, Pink Floyd, Roger Waters, um, made a speech in the UN Congress about how Russia were, uh, were provoked and had no choice in invading. Uh, and he didn't say anything offensive or really outlandish, just having a simple point of view. And um, basically, all of his tours in Krakow um, uh, in Poland have been banned and cancelled. So it was supposed to be a democratic country in Europe, in Poland, in England, the UK, um, all over, and yet they banned his, his concert. So there's no democracy there, and yet they accuse of Russia of all this censorship. So I think it's disgusting beyond belief, and it's total hypocrisy. That was my first point. Um, now, my next point is about Bakhmut. Um, I mean, I've got to say I'm a bit, I'm a bit, you know, missed by it all, because, you know, in the beginning, uh, when they were conquered the Donbass, they went into Sovodinex quite comfortably in other areas. Um, you know, it took a few months, and Maripol was very hard. But I'm just so surprised, such a great military. Why is taking them eight months to conquer uh, Bakhmut? Uh, and I, I, I didn't think it would take this long. And you were saying that they're on the verge of conquering, but yet I think the leader of the Wagner group thinks he will conquer it in April. So I just wanted to see what the differences were there, George. Thank you. Well, uh, I'm not, of course, a military expert. Neither am I a Russian, and I'm not speaking for Russia. I can only discern from all the sources available to me, uh, which are more, much more than to the general public, because I'm following sites in, uh, in various languages uh, and so on. Uh, I have a multilingual family and circle, so I am in possession of quite a lot of information. And I do know that uh, the uh, villages around Bakhmo uh, fell today. And that uh, in the next day, that's why I said by Sunday's show, uh, I expect Bakhmut to have either been evacuated by Zelensky or to have fallen. It was important to Zelensky not uh, to evacuate before the anniversary uh, on the 25th. Uh, but once that anniversary is by, I would expect that order uh, to be given. 
Uh, as to Russia's slow but sure uh, military progress, I think that's because, as Putin put it, they're not at war with the people of Ukraine. And therefore, they don't want to destroy uh, the uh, people and the places in which the Ukrainians live. After all, these parts of eastern Ukraine were the fighting east of the Dnipro River, where the fighting is now, for the most part, uh, they will presumably, when this is over, be Russian territory. The Russian-speaking people there, ethnically Russian people there, uh, are trapped. They're hostages, as Putin put it. And so I presume that the methods of warfare being employed are with that in mind. But there are certain red lines and provocations that could change that calculus. And one of those might be in Transnistria, as I referred to uh, earlier. Let's go, can we, to Mac in Arizona. Go ahead, Mac. Good evening, George. Good evening. Um, I had a uh, question, and uh, you know, it's it's relevant today given the events in Palestine, but it's re it's been relevant for a long time now, and we we see the calculated non-interest of the Anglo-American governments and the Anglo-American legal communities. So my question is, George, what does the Anglo-American governments fail to understand about Zionism? Uh, I don't think they failed uh, at all to understand it. Uh, it uh, Zionism is, is Jewish nationalism, and the British, in the form of the Balfour Declaration, endorsed uh, Zionism uh, by granting, uh, on behalf of one people, uh, land to a second people, which belonged to a third people, and which didn't even fall in the British Empire at the time that the promise was made. So it was unique even by imperial standards uh, for that time. Balfour, on behalf of the British, promised the Zionists on behalf of the Jewish people of the world, though most of them were not Zionists, and many of them were viscerally hostile to Zionism, the land which belonged to a third people, the Palestinian people. So I don't think it's that they don't understand it. They support it. Uh, they support it because, in the words of uh, one of uh, Balfour's cabinet colleagues, uh, it would produce a loyal British Ulster in the Middle East, and so it did. Uh, now it's a loyal American. Uh, statelet in the Middle East. And that's something to have. And for a long time, it threatened and countermanded or undermined, rather, uh, the relations of uh, the British and the Americans with the Arab world. But it doesn't really any longer, at least not with the rulers of the Arab world, who've all made their peace uh, with Zionism. So, uh, now that that is the case, it's full speed ahead uh, in support of, uh, of Israeli nationalism, which is all that Zionism now really means.
lot of good stuff on that Patreon. Uh, if you want access to it, please uh, follow me. It's not even the price of a cup of tea per week uh, to be on it, but it's really helpful to me. And who knows if UNESCO uh, is as bad as our caller from uh, the United States said it was going to be. That might be one of the few places you'll be able to follow me. The poll is now 14,000 people have voted, and it hasn't changed. Is the West to blame for the Ukraine war? On Twitter, 76, yes. On YouTube, 96, yes. On Telegram, 99, yes. And on the YouTube community poll, 96, yes. Well, that would tend to suggest that not everyone, by any means, is buying the fake news narrative. And that has something to do with the work of my next guest. With his friends and colleagues, he was present at the Lincoln Memorial for the Rage Against the War Machine event last weekend. And he will, I think, be a big figure in American political future. I hope so. Anyway, he's Jackson Hinkle, the US-based political analyst and the host of The Dive. Jackson, uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Your president was in Kiev doling out more hundreds of millions of US dollars when a mushroom cloud hung over Ohio and the toxic effects of an inevitable railway crash due to the crumbling infrastructure of your country were left unattended, at least by the president. I see Donald Trump is there today, never one to miss an opportunity. Was this just complacency on the part of Biden or something worse? I think it's something worse. I think it shows that Joe Biden does not put Americans first as he is fulfilling the duties of being president of the United States. He's putting the deep state agenda first. He's putting the military industrial complex first because every single time he signs off on another check for more artillery, more munitions, more bullets, more tanks, more maybe even you know fighter jets soon enough for Ukraine, it's more money in the pockets of the CEOs and the shareholders of Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and all of the other military industrial complex companies. So uh, Donald Trump being in East Palestine, Ohio is great. I think you know he truly does care about these people. He went with over 14,000 bottles of water to hand out to the individuals that are suffering at the hands of this massive environmental uh you know uh, catastrophe that's underway with this what they're calling a controlled burn of a train derailment car carrying chemicals uh and you know it's it's also just goes to show that the Democratic Party has not the slightest care in the world for the citizens of America. I mean, even from a point of view from a political strategist, don't you think, George, that it would make more sense if you have the aim of getting votes and winning the sympathy of the American people to actually at least act like you care about the American people if you're president of the United States? Yes. Uh, uh, any adult... Uh, who's in politics would know the optics, as they put it nowadays, uh, of that. Uh, 
you're swanning around, or not quite swanning, uh, staggering around on a, a red carpet in Kiev uh, when uh, the people are uh, terrified, petrified, not just in East Palestine, Ohio, but in those areas, fully one-third of the people of the United States who draw in part on the Great River, Ohio, for their water supplies, the optics any fool could see would be uh, extremely negative. But isn't this in microcosm, Jackson, exactly the strategic choice that U.S. uh, rulers have made? You can have bullet trains or you can have bullets and give them away to your pet dictatorships. China's infrastructure is bright, shining, new, and its trains rapid, quick, and safe. The United States trains are running on railways that would disgrace Kathmandu in the richest and most powerful country in the world. This is a choice that your rulers have made, isn't it? Of course, it's a choice. And it's, as you know, full well, it's not just our infrastructure. I mean, we have 60,000 Americans that die every year because we don't have access to, uh, you know, universal health care in this country. We have uh, 500 to 600,000 Americans that are homeless and are wondering where they're going to get their next meal each and every day. Uh, It's a crisis what's underway right now with the state of the economy in our country. It's getting worse uh, just as it is in the United Kingdom. And again, Joe Biden has no care in the world for this, as you put it, whether it's sending billions to fund a proxy war, a real war rather, in Afghanistan or Iraq, or a dirty war in Syria to try and topple the Assad government, uh, or, you know, regime change operations underway in Iran, or now this proxy war that we're witnessing uh, in Ukraine against Russia, and probably what's going to be a world war that eventually takes place with China over Taiwan, uh, What's clear is that the United States government is far more focused on influencing other governments, uh, taking control, taking hostage of sovereign people all across the world, rather than actually investing in our country and, and trying to improve the lives of everyday Americans. And that's why the American empire is crumbling, because it's forgotten our people here at home. Uh, even Vladimir Putin in his Federal Assembly speech yesterday pointed this out. He says that the American government has forgotten about its people. It's more concerned with trying to maintain its hegemonic rule across the world. Uh, and that's why countries like, frankly, Russia and China are rising to the occasion. And so many people see the success, the economic, cultural um, and you know, uh, religious success of the countries of like Russia and China, multicultural um, countries. They see it as hope for the future of their own nation. So Yeah, it is very disappointing. And as an American, I hope that at some point in the near future, we get someone in the office of the presidency who at least has some semblance of care for the American public. There's an increasing disjunction, though, between American rhetoric and uh, reality. Uh, I mentioned in my monologue at the beginning a statement this evening from, uh, from the Pentagon, warning, threatening, China with consequences should it deepen its ties with Russia. 
coming from the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, one ineluctably infers uh, that this means military uh, consequences. Now, leaving aside the gigantic hubris of that, the arrogance of ordering another nuclear superpower, who it can be friends with, leave that aside. What can the Americans do about China and Russia deepening their friendship? The answer is zilch. Yeah, I mean, it's just the same exact week that, you know, famed journalist uh, Seymour Hirsch publishes his his incredible piece about how the United States colluded with the Norwegians uh, to blow up the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines of our own ally, Germany, in one of the largest industrial terror attacks in human history. They have the audacity, the United States has the audacity to tell China that they can't ally with Russia. These are two sovereign nations. And, you know, also worth noting at the same time, we are ramping up escalations with China by making up all these crazy lies about Taiwan, saying that, you know, Taiwan is not part of China. It's not governed by Beijing. Uh, we are trying to actively, the United States government is trying to destroy um you know, peace deals that we've had with China uh, for decades and decades now surrounding this very question of Taiwan. In addition to that, we just put up four new military bases, I believe, in the Philippines this week uh, to further encircle China. And I mean, it's it's just insane. It's ludicrous. China is a sovereign state. They should be able to do what they want when they want it without the fear of the United States launching, you know, a World War Three based on their ally with uh, Russia. But you know, to make matters worse, of course, everything that the United States has done over the past several decades, especially in Russia and also in China, have just turned these two nations far closer to each other. If the U.S. wanted to create a new Sino-Soviet split by starting this proxy war in Ukraine on February 24th of last year, well, they failed immensely and they've gotten Russia a whole lot closer to China economically, militarily and diplomatically as well. Quite so, uh, although you are making light work of hobby balloons and, uh, and uh, <laughs> Super Bowl blimps, your Air Force, at least at the third time of asking, managed to polish them off. Is there any, was that just a, a diversion, Jackson? Was it just a gag? Uh, or are the U.S. leadership suffering the ridicule that they ought to be suffering for that whole uh, balloon gate fiasco. I have no idea what that was, but all I do know is when you have every single media outlet in the country uh, constantly talking about how there's UFOs flying above the sky and no one knows what they are and the government is launching $400,000 heat-seeking missiles at them, Well, it causes a lot of people to lose focus on the meat and potatoes of what they really should be focusing on. Like, again, the fact that Seymour Hersh had just released this incredible article exposing how the U.S. orchestrated the largest industrial terror attack in recent history on our own ally in Germany. So, uh, yeah, I think it was an effort to uh, give the American public a shiny thing, a shiny object to look at when they should be focused on the crimes, the brutality and the arrogance of our leadership in this country. Yeah, not so much don't look up, but please, please look up. Look up, look anywhere except 
uh, down at what we are achieving. Lastly, uh, you mentioned Putin's speech, and he made another one uh, today in a packed stadium, which certainly looked like quite a gig. Uh, he seemed very confident to me, uh, entirely lacking in the fake uh, braggadocio that accompanied uh, Joe Biden's rather tinny uh, speech in Warsaw. But he did encapsulate in his address uh, something that may be of lasting importance. He, he pitched this confrontation in civilizational terms. He demarcated a civilization, which is Russian, differentiating it from other civilizations. It's been passed to us, he said, and we must preserve and pass it on. He talked about the West as decadent and depraved. And it's not hard to see what he was on about. It's not hard, just look around you and you'll see on television, on the internet, in the new wokeness that is everywhere like a virus, in our public bodies, even in our education systems. It's not hard to see what Putin was uh, was talking about. And unlucky for Western rulers, there are many, many people in Western countries agree with Putin on these matters, which may, of course, have been the reason why he identified this uh, stream in his uh, stream of consciousness. But I would have thought in America, certainly in Britain, it is the case that most people are social conservatives, cultural conservatives, with a small c. They don't like the way our society and our world has become. Is it the same in the U.S.? Of course. And I think you're right that many people in America did resonate with what Putin had to say in his Federal Assembly speech regarding the rich cultural values that Russia is trying to preserve in their country right now. And I think it would probably be accurate to say that Russia views what's happening right now with this proxy war against their nation as, um, you know, it's not just something that they have to defend in the face of Nazism, but they're defending their country, their humanity in the face of Satanism. I mean, this truly is an absolute war. Uh, it's a war not just against the West or the ephemeral states of Ukraine. It's something much, much deeper than that. The Russian people understand that. Vladimir Putin definitely understands that. And that's what he, um, you know, he analyzed so well in his speech yesterday. And I think that... Uh, well, I think that maybe some Western leaders like Joe Biden and Victoria Newland will be shocked to see just how many Americans were tweeting out their support and their praise for Putin's speech yesterday. Because like him or not, uh, like what he's doing in Ukraine or not, uh, most people, like you said, all across the world understand that, yes, these traditional values are innate to human life. And we do treasure them. We do value them. Putin saying that we should not be sexualizing children like they're doing in the West right now is not all that radical of an idea. I think most people on the planet will agree with that. But for some reason, that's now become a radical opinion to hold in the United States as corporations, governments and schools are all doing just that. So I was happy to see his speech and specifically, like you just said, how much he focused on the cultural aspect 
of this war? Yeah, civilizational, cultural, sexualization of children, the importance of the family. You see, that, that strikes a chord with many people. It certainly does in this house. Uh, and I think in most houses, um, whilst Western policymakers are doing everything they can to undermine, certainly never to support, and often to help destroy the family. Yes, I, I entirely agree. I mean, it's become it's become almost a prerequisite for any elected official, definitely in the Democratic Party, uh, to you know support trying to dismember the family unit and to push all of these various woke ideologies on the American public if they want to serve an elected office on behalf of the Democratic Party. And the worst part of all is Putin back in 2016 when he was talking to Oliver Stone. He told Oliver Stone, "Look." If the West wants to try and maintain their global hegemony, if the West wants to try and maintain this, you know, semblance of dominance all across the world, by all means, they can try to do that, but they cannot interfere in our own domestic affairs here in Russia and expect that we're not going to put up a fight. So that's what we're seeing right now. If the West wants to do this on their own accord to their own people, Putin doesn't have any beef with it. It's not his problem. He's the president of Russia. But the fact that they were trying to export this cancerous, liberal, woke ideology and the destruction of the family, which will bring about the destruction of the nation to Russia uh, through various proxies, is what eventually set off this civilizational war that we're witnessing and uh, that Russia is currently looking like they're going to remain victorious in. Jackson Hinkle, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Always a pleasure. Uh, here's the poll results. 14,000 people voted. 76% blame the West on Twitter. 96% on YouTube. 99% on Telegram. And 96% on the YouTube community poll. Unbelievable numbers. Are you watching Ben Wallace? Have you come out from behind your sofa, behind which you hid to avoid debating with me in the Oxford Union, you cowardly little runt, sending your Lieutenant Tobias Elwood, who really wasn't up to the match, nice but dim, more a, more a, a valet to the chief of the army than the chief himself. Are you, are you watching, Ben? The people blame you. YouTube comments. Douglas Helliwell, like you said the other day, George, Tobias Elwood didn't mention conscription for king and country, but the underlying stench was there, my friend. Thank you, Douglas. Uh, Mourns Lad says, not a word yet on BBC or TV or radio of Seymour Hersh's conclusions about Nord Stream, despite my texting of my local station, which talks about the tyranny of Putin, but not Biden's bombing. It couldn't even properly get on the media in Germany, whose pipeline it was. But once Moats Berlin starts in German, very soon, you're not going to be able to shut the truth out any longer. Taking a break, and I'll be right back. Stay tuned. 
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Anybody in public life hates to get letters like this. It's heartbreaking. The title, Used to be a Fan. It's from Terry Monza. George, over many decades I was a fan of yours, but these times I do not understand you. When you said to Channel 4 News, fake news, I lost interest. Channel 4 News is not fake news. It's written from Ward 5 in Broadmoor Hospital for the uh, criminally insane, or he's got me confused with someone else because I haven't said one word to Channel 4 News in many years. Not even the words fake news, Terry. Why not look back at the interview and get back to me? Ronwell is in Chicago, wants to talk about the war. Go ahead, Ronwell. Hello, George. Uh, but by the way, uh, I couldn't stop laughing about the uh, the not the part. Now about the uh, yeah. about the war thing um, in, in the rally. Right? I, I was able to be one born person, and one thing I I could learn learn from him him is that I thought that someone on his um, channel, the Wombo Liberty Report, uh, said that how he ended Ukrainian war, and it said we need to end the, the war now. And I have to agree with Wombo on that one because because in order to end the Ukrainian war, we need to negotiate now. And it's free Julia Assange also. So so that, that's what I would yep. say. Negotiate for peace but by having a diplomacy, not some massive fundings to Ukraine or whatever that is. So that's what I would say. Well, uh, it's good. Uh, very good. I agree with it. But uh, it's not uh, immediately on the prospect. Who would they send to negotiate with Mr. Lavrov? Joe Biden? Seriously? YouTube comments on the uh, YouTube community poll. ABC Panda? Not the West, only the US and NATO. In 2008, when the US insisted that Ukraine should join NATO, the President of France and the Chancellor of Germany all refused this idea. They didn't want Europe to be destabilized. Well, they're not opposing it now. Brian is in Canada, wants to talk about Scottish independence. I'm all ears, Brian. Go ahead. Well, don't get too excited, George. This is, I'm a man of a certain age, uh, you know, North American, uh, Canadian, uh, American bent. And so uh, one of our great heroes, our great writers of the day of us young radicals was good old Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Okay. That, Go ahead. His, well, his alter, yeah, his, he had an alter ego whose name I shall speak in a minute. But I can't help myself. I was thinking, you can use this joker if you want to anybody who's not listening. I said, as far as the Scottish Nationalist parties goes, Something's looking awful fishy to me. First we had salmon. Now we've got sturgeon. Where are we going to get Kilgore trout? 
And that's the name of the man <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut invented. <laughs> yeah, very good. Very good. I don't know I what's going to happen next. You know uh, the consternation in uh, the White House uh, when Joe Biden announced that Britain's new prime minister was someone called Rashid Sanuk. It's looking like Scotland's new first minister will be somebody called Hamza Youssef. I personally hope so, because no one is more likely, more quickly, to utterly destroy the credibility of the bogus case for breaking up this small island than Rashid Sanouk working in double harness with Hamza Youssef. Once upon a time, the British thought they should rule India. Now we've got Indians ruling us. Just you wait and see what the public reaction is likely to be. In Norway, the co-conspirator in the blowing up of the Nord Stream. How's it going down in the fjords, John? Hello, George. <laughs> nice to be on. Well, I can tell you, many of the us Norwegians now, we feel ashamed. Very ashamed. Because this is the worst thing that have happened in Norway in all times, actually. You see, Russia is our neighbor. It was Russia that threw out the Germans in Finnmark during the war. And we have always had a good relationship with Russia. And the, this government, uh, they are jumping when USA say jump. And they have jumped in, in Libya. They have jumped in, in, uh, uh, in, in Kosovo. They have, <laughs> they have jumped all over when the Russians say they shall jump. So now th this is the worst thing that has happened to the Norwegians. So we can, what, we are now waiting for the news to break loose here and see how long this government can stay on. Well, that's a very beautiful call and a very important one, uh, John. Um, of course, uh, I just learned in depth today about the role that the Norway special boat services played in assisting the United States invasion and occupation of Vietnam. I was completely unaware of that. At that time, one imagined that uh, Norway was some kind of cuddly, social democratic, Scandinavian idyll. But in fact, they were secretly up to their ears in assisting the US massacres in Vietnam. Uh, so I think partly, just like my own country, uh, there are too many people who have a rose-colored, spectacled view uh, of their own country's role in events. But it will be interesting uh, to see what the impact on public opinion is in Norway when the Seymour Hersh story really begins to, to rumble through the fjords. Thank you, John, in Norway. David is in California in Orange County and wants to talk about Putin. Go ahead, David. Yeah, how you doing, George? Been a while since I talked to you. Been a long time, actually. Hey, I got a new poll question for you. Okay. Ask your, ask your viewers, would they rather have 
Putin for president rather than the numb nuts they got? <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question, actually. I think you'd be surprised at the result, David. Who, who would you rather have running your country? Putin, Putin. A, numb nuts, B. I, I think that's a great, great question, a great poll. I'll put it to the editor. Last word to you, oh, Dave. Okay. Say hi to my Land Rover buddies. I used to work for Land Rover here in Oxnard. Okay, <laughs> I will do. Thank you very much. Uh, Rashid is in California, but not Rashid Sanuk, I hope. Go ahead, Rashid. George, how are you? Uh, George, uh, based on the comments you had or discussion you had with your previous guest who pointed out the uh, travesty of what's happening in Syria and in the, the occupied territories, um, it's, as you pointed out, the double standard of what the Western nations do and are concerned about in one arena and how they're indifferent to it in another arena. And I would just add to that that if you look at um, just Western nations in general, uh, the average person has very little influence on what the government does. And when you throw into the fact over the last 20, 30 years, we've had this factory of young leaders uh, selected by the World Economic Forum and the Davos crowd. There's like a higher power that these people follow, and they're more interested in addressing the concerns of that ulterior organization rather than the working people of each state. So I would impress upon the audience that uh, for an average Joe in America, we're concerned about Palestine. We're concerned about the Chagosians. We're concerned about what's happening in Ukraine as much as the next person. But the nature of our structure of our governance and our elections just does not allow us to impact that process without taking really extreme actions. Well, I, I get that. Uh, although at election time, uh, every one of us has exactly the same amount of power in our hands at the ballot box. If we all voted in the same way and it was the right way, uh, we would change the political class. So those responsible for persuading the people to do so have clearly failed. Uh, I don't mean that to be uh, damning or derogatory. I have completely failed myself in my own country. Uh, but we have completely failed the so-called left or the socialists, the anti-imperialists, we have uh, miserably failed to persuade our fellow man and woman, our neighbor, our workmate, person who lives down the road, the person who uh, goes to the same uh, clubs and so on. We've completely failed. And that's why they can still get away with it. Until that changes, this factory that you mentioned will keep on churning out these leaders, although I'm not sure Joe Biden can be described as a young leader. Thanks, Rashid. Joe is in New Jersey. Hey, George. Hey, uh, power to the people. And God bless the Palestinian people, the victims of apartheid, genocide, and Zionism. And, George, I'd like to make a comment on the plan that I heard on the radio for destroying China. But first, I'd like to make a comment on the Zionists and Zionism that you were talking about earlier. George, in my opinion, the Israeli Zionists, as well as the entire Biden administration, which are Israeli loyalists and Zionists, are nothing more than monsters 
who feed on the blood and death and suffering of innocence. They feed on the blood of the helpless. They feed on the blood and suffering of children. And uh, I don't think there is a greater scourge to have ever infected humanity than those who feed on the blood of others in joy. And George, on, uh, on China here, I, I rarely listen to the radio, very rarely. And I was in the, you know, on the road, and for some reason I turned on the radio, and sure enough, I scanned through a couple of channels, and something came on. A guy was being introduced from a think tank, and he was, wrote a book, and he was laying out the plan for defeating China. His plan, and the plan that seems to be what they want, is he was saying that a couple of destroyers around China would be all it needs to destroy China, because China depends, it, it feeds its people on imports. So without imports, it would break China. And this guy was bragging joyously that it would be easy to starve to death 300 to 500 million Chinese, and that is what's needed to bring around change to China. I, I, I was sickened by it. I, I, uh, I changed the station. And then, you know, I went back to the station, and then the guy's talking some more, and, and uh, the only thing I got was something uh, Stratford. or It, it was, it was a, a think tank, and this guy wrote a book, but he bragged on defeating China. And he thought, he, he repeated Madeleine Albright's, that he thought the death of 300 to 500 million Chinese was well worth it, in his words. I just wanted to share that with your audience. Wow. And I want to share my opinion. Well, I'm glad you did. Uh, yeah, I'm, gl I'm, I'm glad you did, and I will deal with it. Uh, Israeli nationalism is no different from any other kind of nationalism. It's not unique in any way. The Israeli killers who murdered all these people in Nablus today did that not because they were Israelis, still less that they were Jews. They did it because they were occupiers. All occupiers behave like that. That's where all occupations lead. Nationalism, the kind of virulent nationalism we see, for example, in the political structures in Ukraine, I considers everyone else less than them, particularly Jews, as it happens. They massacred millions of Jews in the Holocaust of the East in the uh, Second World War. They uh, see uh, Russians as subhumans, literally. This kind of nationalism exists uh, in many places. Uh, it, it exists in the United States, exists in Britain, in Norway, uh, where a great massacre took place of children uh, at the hands of a Norwegian fascist, Breivik, and so on. If I had more time, I'd develop more uh, along that uh, point. But of course, uh, this uh, 300 million starved Chinese uh, falls on two counts. First of all, do you think China would allow the destroyers to blockade their country? Do you think China would not blow the U.S. Navy out of the water before a single day had gone by of a blockade? And secondly, uh, the pipelines 
and the rail and road networks from Russia to China are precisely important because they mitigate the otherwise over-dependence on sea routes for China's imports uh, and indeed exports. So uh, I'm afraid your man in Bellevue, for that's where I presume he was broadcasting from uh, on the radio, was talking through uh, his hat or his straight jacket, more likely. Mickey3255 says, George, I'm 300 miles away from the chemical plume in Ohio, and I saw a lot of cows dead by the river this morning. Coincidence? What do you think? No coincidence at all, Mickey. Mickey asks how he can donate. If you're on YouTube, go to Super Chat. Please, Mickey, and donate. If you're not watching on YouTube, go to our website, moats.tv. Uh, the happy little fox, a.k.a. Benji, says if Joe ain't sniffing kids, he's popping their balloons. That is the message of the night. Happy little fox indeed. Ahmed is in London on Palestine. Go ahead, Ahmed. Hello, George. I'm a big fan. I've listened to you for a long time, but I'm a first-time caller, and it's great to hear from you, George. Um I have, I've basically came up with an idea, and I was wondering your intake on it. And it's the Palestinian and Israeli peace settlement. Uh, what I, my idea is, is um, for every Palestinian to wear a simple white cloth and to write to draw the Star of David on it. And I was thinking maybe the Israelis, if all Palestinians did that, then no Israeli would shoot, decide would shoot any Palestinian. I was wondering what you would think of my idea. And hopefully I will win the Peace Nobel Prize. I, I, I think they would shoot them with increased gusto uh, for so doing. So I'm afraid the Nobel Peace Prize isn't yours. The biscuit is yours, though, uh, for the positively weirdest suggestion of the night, Ahmed. But thanks for calling in. 15,253 people voted in our poll. 1.18 million watched us in the last seven days. Rumble had a six-figure audience within two hours of coming off the air. Something is happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear, but I'm willing to hazard a guess that the sheer weight of public curiosity for the alternative point of view, plus the fact that we produce a good show, nobody, even our worst enemies, could dispute that. We present the alternative point of view with zingers. And people need zingers. They need to instantly grasp and understand the arguments and counter-arguments that are being made. There'd be no point in me coming here and reading out a treatise, monotone, uh, filled with, uh, with footnotes. 
that would be uh, worse than useless. But we have managed to create a popular show that deals with complicated issues, issues that are entirely misrepresented in the so-called legacy media. And that's why I think both Moats America and Moats Berlin are going to be terrific successes. Because in both of these countries, there is a gross shortage. Not necessarily of the one, the alternative point of view, exists, of course, in Germany. It exists, of course, in the United States, but it is not being delivered in a popular enough style, in a professional and popular enough style. And that's where we at Moats, with all our experience, uh, come in. Okay, last couple of calls, I think. Robert is in the Bronx. Who wouldn't want to visit the Bronx on the subject of war? Robert, the floor is yours, sir. George. Uh, for the last couple of months, we've been hearing about uh, we're waiting for the ground to freeze so uh, Russia can end this war. Well, the ground is frozen and nothing's happening. I, I think that if they wait till the spring, then I think Russia's going to come out the loser. How do you think they're going to come out the loser, Robert? Who, who's going because they to want the ground them? to freeze. Well, the ground is frozen now and uh, no major offensive. Well, the. Uh, at the beginning of the show, I did tell you that there was a major offensive launched this evening and right along the entire length of the front. But you're right to reflect. You're reflecting uh, a feeling that exists, perhaps above all in Russia, that Russia have uh, prosecuted this war in far too soft a way. Uh, with velvet gloves uh, that were just too velvet, that uh, more military effort should have been exerted. That point of view exists uh, in, uh, in Russia in particular, but also uh, in the Bronx and in London and so on. It exists. I myself don't share it. <clears throat> I think that Putin and Lavrov are the wisest leaders in the world today. And if they have decided on this military political strategy, I think that it is likely to be a wise one. As I said earlier on another caller, uh, it's, they don't want to kill Ukrainians. They don't want to destroy Eastern Ukraine, which they believe will soon be theirs, was once theirs, and is where Russian-speaking people live in their hundreds of thousands, indeed, in their millions. So it's probably an excess of caution uh, in that regard. But the last word to you, Robert. Uh, I just hope they finish it, because the quicker they finish, the, the better off we're going to be. Okay, Robert, uh, I don't know if anyone from Russia listens to this show. Not even sure if they can. But if they do, I'm sure they will have heard Robert in the Bronx, in the great city of New York, on the subject of the Ukraine. Somehow, 
encapsulating the sheer breadth of this show. I, from a council house in Dundee, talking to Robert in the Bronx, in New York, about a war taking place on the still-frozen wastes uh, of Lugansk. It is a remarkable uh, thing. Now, you'll be aware that our No to NATO, No to War rally is going ahead on Saturday at 11 a.m. in central London. If you have a ticket for it, you will be informed by email exactly where it is. And you should head straight for central London to be there in central London no later than 10.30 in the morning. That'll give you half an hour to get the one tube stop, if so, if that, from where you are in central London to where you need to be to hear that galère of speakers. Two former British ambassadors, two former British parliamentarians, me and Chris Williamson, two members of the European Parliament, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, the great pensioners leader from Liverpool, Audrey White, the great entertainer, rapper and activist, Low Key, former soldiers like Reuben Lawrence of the Workers' Party and the one and only Dan Kovalik, a very, very popular guest indeed. Fiona Edwards from the No Cold War campaign, Max Blumenthal, Anya Parampil, American royalty will be speaking either in person or on the screen. And so it's going to be a great triumph. It's going to be a great triumph because a very, very large number of people will be there. So much so we may have to hold the meeting twice, once after the other. We may even have to hold it three times, once after the other, after the other. But hold it, we will. On Saturday at 11 a.m., if you are registered already to attend the No to NATO rally, please do so. And I think we're going to send a powerful message to the British government, as that poll did tonight, a powerful message to the governments of Europe, a powerful message to the warmongers of the world. That is exactly all I have time for. But the good news is I'll be back, God willing, on Sunday at the earlier hour of 7 p.m. when I hope to be wearing my Manchester United scarf because I'm expecting our team to lift the cup at Wembley on Sunday. At least, I hope so. Have a good night and thanks for being here.